to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Hello and welcome to The Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, editor of innovationoz.com and your host for The Commercial Disco podcast. I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Ball, Associate Professor of Engineering at ANU. She's also the co-creator of the World of Drones and Robotics Congress, I think in its fourth year, is that right? Fifth year. Fifth year this year. A council member of Queensland Futures Institute, and you wear many other hats. We'll perhaps get across a few of them as this conversation goes on. To start with, we're talking drones and robotics. Where's the expertise that we have here in Australia? I understand we do quite well in this area. Where does that expertise come from? How did we come to be quite good at this stuff? Well, with all emerging technologies, they're not limited by academic capability, but what they can be limited by is regulatory capability. And so one thing we can put our hands on our heart and say is that Australia was the first place in the world to have official drone regulation from their airspace regulator. So CASA here in Australia was number one at creating drone legislation. And as soon as you create regulatory environments, then businesses flourish because then you've actually got a business model which people can apply to rather than being purely involved in R&D. And if there's one thing that frustrates me around some of our R&D in Australia is that we're no good at the sea, the commercialization. And sometimes that is because of the regulatory environment and the governance environment, and maybe the knowledge of the board directors that are behind some of those things. So we are number one because we started first. The Kiwis are quite close behind, as it has to be said. But um, if you just take, you know, looking at someone like Airbus and Facebook, who are trialing their equipment in Western Australia, we've got Google, who were the first ones to come here with Google X in Queensland in 2012, delivered a dog snack using a drone. And since then, they've created the world's first commercial drone deliveries just south of Brisbane here in a place called Logan. So we are a place where the world firsts. And importantly, where the world's seconds and thirds and fourths of some of these technologies actually take place, proof is in the pudding. Okay, and we're talking about drones and robotics. I find it a little bit fascinating that regulation is a good thing. You actually create a platform on which new tech can be built. That was your basic point, right? Yeah, I think so. If you don't have the regulatory environment, then you're working without it. And, and to work without it means how do you get insurances for it? And so with robotics, for example, a lot of our universities are really good at creating trial and test site and capability for people to get the safety data and to test their ideas before they then go to the regulators for approval. And that's everything from launching satellites through to health robotics. Okay, so when when we talk about drones and robotics, what are the sectors or where are the applications now that kind of emerging as the most interesting to you? I look at things like mining and, and agriculture, and I suppose there's there's a lot going on in those sectors, but what, what else can you talk to us about? Oh, well, yes, look, all drones are robots, but not all robots are drones. And so the reason why even at the Congress, we added the robotics element is because we've seen the drone industry mature to the point where it's being acquired, lots of acquisitions. So we're seeing lots of robotics companies buy up drone companies. We're seeing car companies take interest in drone companies. So flying taxis, the Jetsons, that is something that's coming. It may not necessarily be what you think it might be, but it's definitely on its way here. And Australia, Australia was definitely handpicked as one of the first places for Uber Elevate to trial their Bell Nexus drones, I think, were the ones that they were looking at in particular. And I saw one of those bad boys a couple of years ago in Chicago, and it really is very slick. It's like the Aston Martin of personal transport drones. Though, you know, if there was an Aston Martin drone, I'd definitely get in it. So public transport, but also that last mile 
So the last mile, I think, is something that's quite important to Australia. So the last mile in terms of delivery of medicines, the last mile in terms of transporting things across cities where, you know, it may not physically be a long distance, but it will be a long time in the traffic congestion. And so in the UAE, for example, they deliver mail rooftop to rooftop because the traffic congestion is so bad. If we look at things here like the bushfires, we've got the ANU bushfire initiative. We know that drones and satellites and traditionally crewed aircraft will all be used as part of the fight against catastrophic bushfires. Drones were definitely used after the bushfires to look to see where the damage was, to find wildlife that was still alive so food could be dropped for them, but also finding people that are lost. You know, drones have been used to find people lost, but also people when they've been hiking with their drones have gotten lost and then sent their drone for help uh. and said, hi, we're here and we don't know how to get out. Can you come and get us? And luckily they had enough battery to get to the car park where there was someone having a cup of tea that could get their help message. In all seriousness, though, we do have the shark detection drones. We also have crocodile detection drones. So keeping people safe in areas where there might be interactions with dangerous wildlife is very important. I think our indigenous rangers and our remote communities have the ability to use drones, not only for agriculture, which is actually really doing very well here in Australia, but also things like ghost nets, things like protecting turtles. So if you look at some of that work that Microsoft and CSIRO have done on the west coast of Cape York in partnership with the indigenous ranger groups up there, protecting our turtle nesting beaches from feral pigs is something that has proven incredibly successful. But drones don't just fly. We've also got ones that swim and ones that sail and ones that crawl. And so the idea that we have drones on the Great Barrier Reef fighting crown of thorns starfish, the idea that we have large sail drones going off on long missions around our oceans to collect information and data, and the fact that we have deep submersible drones that are mapping our ocean floor, our ocean floor being the largest museum that we can't explore, amongst other things. These are really technologies that are putting us on the edge of where we can get to physically as humans. And of course, now we have a drone on Mars in Ingenuity, or Ginny, as she's called to the NASA JPL that created her. And so I'm really excited to see what she achieves with her five missions on Mars. So aerospace for Australia is a growth market. Aerospace here in Queensland is particularly important. And so it's an area where we have a dearth of training and expertise, and it's an area of growth. So if people are looking to pivot their careers during the next few years, aerospace and the space area is certainly huge for Australia on the horizon. Most of the things you're describing we're, we're sort of doing today, whether it's in a research capacity, perhaps not at scale, but in a research capacity. But when we talk about drones, it still seems quite futuristic. I mean, it does to me anyway. So <laughs> need to get your hands on some. Have you flown one yet? I have. I have actually just oh. in my recent holidays with my kids. There you go. And incredible. If they had them while I was a kid, I would have been very excited. Okay, but when we talk about solving this last mile mm. issue, when do you think we'll see that deliveries at, at scale in bulk, all of those kinds of things? Is it a long way off? I'd say not necessarily so. So if you think about vehicles like trucks that don't have drivers in, they are probably the first way that we will have drones doing the last mile delivery. They may not be flying, they may be driving looking like cars or looking like trucks. And if we think about pandemic, actually in putting a pandemic lens on some of these technologies, how could we have handled the pandemic differently if we had fully automated and controlled robotic systems able to do some of that last mile delivery, especially with people who are on lockdown? How do we get them their food that they need and how do we get that medicine that they might need without them having to leave their homes because there's a lockdown happening? Caltech developed a flying drone ambulance a few years ago. We look at Australia Post. They were trialing and looking at things a few years ago. I think Star Trek was starting to look at some 
things. And I've not really seen huge growth in that area, which is a source of frustration to me because I think if any organization could do this, it is Australia Post. They know enough about delivery and they have enough of the strategic framework in place that they already do those kinds of deliveries as to how that can augment how they work and keep their staff safe. One of the things here is I think our workplace health and safety legislation is actually driving a lot. We went from the carrot of the drone industry to the stick of you have to use new technologies to reduce your health and safety risk. And that has created a new business paradigm that's got board directors talking. And this is where I think board directors, if they're listening to this and you don't know about drones and robotics, please, please get educated because these technologies are going to be business as usual in the next five years. Soon we'll be eating fruit and vegetables that have not even been touched by a human hand. We've got raspberry picking robots. We've got everything, anything you can think of. There's a robot that can probably pick it, pack it, put it on your plate. And Australia is the best in the world at some of these things. And uh, I think this is a space for startups to really innovate and make money. Okay. You talked about a growth industry, particularly in Queensland, but I'm sure all over uh, all over Australia you've just described. So if one would have wanted to pivot into the drone sector, robotic sector, how would you go about doing that? What kind of skill sets are immediately transferable? How would you look to get involved in that growth area? Well, most Australian adults, I'd suggest, have learned how to drive a car and get a car license. So I'd suggest that most Australian adults can learn to fly a drone and get a drone license. And then once you have a drone license, you can work as a drone operator. Or if you're a board director or a corporate person that will never fly a drone again in your life, what you've actually done by learning how to do that and getting the license for it is you've actually touched an emerging technology. You've actually learned the capabilities of it. And like yourself with your children on your holiday recently, you may have fallen a little bit in love with it and wondered what it might have been like for you if you'd had your hands on that 20 years ago. So for me, technology does not need to be up an ivory tower, does not need to sit in a basement in Silicon Valley. It needs to be in the hands of people that are making the decisions about business models and how to innovate in the face of change. Okay, let me move on. One of the things that you talk about a lot is Industry 5.0. I wonder if you can just step us through 5.0. I've only just got my head around Industry 4.0. So what are we actually talking about? So if you take Industry 4.0 and you give it a heart and a soul, that's Industry 5.0. So the idea is you take all of the technologies that we've learned, all the systems that we've put in place, and you actually make it for purpose. Because I think that future business models, especially after what we've been through in the last couple of years, if they don't have corporate social responsibility as the reason they exist, they won't necessarily work very well. I think people will change their buying habits. People have already started changing their buying habits based on how large companies, medium companies and tech companies deal with people. And I think what happened with Facebook in Australia in the last few weeks and Google has really shone a light on the social license that these large companies need to have to operate. So Industry 5.0 is not new, though. In Japan, it was called Society 5.0. And it was the last stage of the Arby economics revolution before Arby stepped down in Japan. And so the idea there is that it's great to have all this technology, but if it doesn't improve the world, if it doesn't improve the health of people who are sick, if it doesn't improve the opportunities for our children, if it doesn't prevent climate change, if it doesn't prevent extreme weather events, if it doesn't help us, then what's the point in having it is the problem. So Society 5.0 is all about the reason why. Okay. So all of those technologies that kind of underpin Industry 4.0, 5.0 or Society 5.0, as you've talked about, these are all huge opportunities for new ideas, new thinking and new products and services. As someone who's sitting inside 
academia, I guess, but heavily involved in the commercialization of various products and services. I just wanted to ask you, how do we improve that commercialization piece that you referred to before? You know, we seem to punch above our weight in research, commercialization, not so much, and industry engagements, not so much. I think one of the key things here is that we need to produce a set of uh, nexus opportunities, right? So we need to provide triumvirates where academia, government and industry can actually work together to solve problems. One of the things my dean said to me is that, Catherine, look, we know people that can bring us lots of solutions, but what we want from you is someone who can bring us lots of problems. And without wanting to sound negative, I was like, yes, I can actually bring you lots of problems. And one of them might be is how do we prevent the fact that 95% of startups fail because they have no viable business model? How do we prevent the drain of potential startups that end because of the way people are employed by or work for universities? And so how do we, not necessarily just throwing more money at the problem, but providing oxygen to the opportunities? So in all seriousness, one of the things we need is almost like a bring out your dead to the corporates and say, bring out your dead, bring out your sick, show us what's wrong with your business models, show us what's wrong and failing with how you've adapted to climate change, how you've adapted to the pandemic, how you've adapted to changes in purchasing, how you've adapted to the changes in global supply chain, and how you've adapted to new expectations and social license from your customers. And that's where universities, I think, provide a massive opportunity. But it's a matter of setting that up so that it works for the universities in a way that it works for industry. We know that the funding for universities is going to continue to evolve. And we know that universities are there for a number of reasons outside of just making money. But we know they need to be funded. So how do we provide these neutral spaces, these landing pads, if you will, or innovation alleys, areas where ideas can actually be given that oxygen and given the business model, which means that they will survive? This is why I'm really, really into this idea of convergent technologies, because I think some of these technologies, they're really great on their own. and They're fantastic and they're very niche. And if you want a really good drone that can fly a very long way, you might want somebody who's really great at batteries. But just because they're really great at batteries doesn't mean they understand that that drone is going to be used to detect sharks. And so what you need then is to have that diversity around the table of people that will go, well, this is great, but have you tried it for this instead? It's a bit like the orphan drugs thing in the pharmaceutical industry. You know, they create a lot of time and effort and money on producing drugs and getting them into clinical trials. But if they don't do what they need to do, they stop and they get put on a shelf and they get left behind as the pharmaceutical company, rightly so, has to continue on and looking for new solutions. But what happens to those orphan drugs? What happens to the orphan technologies? What happens to the orphan research that maybe wasn't quite right at the time or didn't quite have the consumer, the buyer, the place where it was going to be applied? That's where I get really excited. And this is where convergent technologies is going to be a key aspect of how we come out of this pandemic. Putting things like, you know, we've got our iPhones or smartphones or devices that we sit on. Who ever thought we'd have a calculator and a telephone and a camera and a diary and a photo album and an ability to call my mother via video call that I'd only ever seen on Space 2001, you know, all in the palm of our hands. And soon that's going to be thin like a piece of paper. Soon it's going to be wearable technology. Soon it's going to be implantable technology. Soon it's going to be contact lens technology. So convergent technologies for me is where they're worth more than the sum of the parts in that they are able to do more because they are being applied in a way that provides an answer to a problem. They're not just being applied in a way where they go, we are the next best solution. And I think that's the difference between academic thinking and startup thinking, time and oxygen and the pressure off the necks of inventors and startups. So they have a space where they can trial business models. The business models might fail, but they don't fall over. And I feel like we lose a lot in the falling over of some of our startup ecosystem. 
You've sort of described, I think, you know, a cultural impediment, but also structural impediments or, or requirements for cultural change and structural change that would sort of enable two sides of that coin to flourish, I guess, if universities are being used as a platform of support. That's what we're trying to establish at ANU. So one of the things that I want to achieve there is the ability for us to actually graduate students who have skills and the ability to work and advance industries, but also to attract industries to bring their problems to us so we can actually work on providing solutions for those businesses to help them thrive on a global scale. That's kind of my dream for what I'm trying to achieve at ANU. What's your thinking on sort of mission-based innovation? I mean, not necessarily kind of you know, national scale missions around health. I think we've got one going on now or, you know, the Apollo program, if you're going to look historically. But mission-based or challenge-based where someone unearths a thorny problem and just puts it out there and has incremental payments on success. Well, this is where, I mean, I was a judge on the Ocean Discovery X Prize. So, I mean, X Prize is just one organisation that does this by setting up challenges where there is no money per se, but there are gatekeeper payments, right? So it's like you can gatekeeper payment through and then there's a big prize. And this is what Elon Musk is doing with X Prize with their new Carbon X Prize. I actually think they're incredibly powerful because I've seen the inside of the economics of these competitions. And I would need to, I might lie if I gave you the numbers, but if I remember rightly, I think for the fact that there was an $8 million prize for the, the Ocean Discovery X Prize, it generated nearly 10 times that in terms of innovation, investment across the ideas. The fact that we'd even given people oxygen to their ideas so they could trial and test them. And in fact, one of the winners of the NOAA prize was actually a high school in California that's from a lower socioeconomic area. And they won some money because they just had a go, right? They just had a go. They weren't necessarily the best solution, but it was a smaller prize that everybody who was going for the bigger prize didn't pay much attention to. So they won a significant amount of money. And they're now also entering the Rainforest X prize. So this is high school kids. So I think we need to have these global challenges. And we know that we've done those in the past through the government and also through universities. This idea of challenge-based learning, I think, is key. It's something I'd like to see more in the boardroom, actually. I'd like to see board directors sitting and working out how to solve problems because it's learning how to. And this is why a PhD is great. And we need to have more people with PhDs on boards in Australia, because one of the things about PhDs is that you learn how to learn and you unlearn how to learn and you learn how to query things and question things and unashamedly pull things to pieces because you're doing it in an academic sense, not in a personal attack. And so I feel like we need to have that thought leadership and actually challenges and competitions and X prizes and anything you can think of, like, you know, Ocean Impact Org, for example, is another great one that's starting in Sydney that's going to be used as a testbed for ocean-based technologies. They create it, you build it, they will come. And, and I feel like they are great honeypots for people who might be interested to even collaborate with other people that are working. One of the other fallouts of the X Prize was that we've obviously got the Jebco 2030 map the ocean floor by 2030. And so as part of that, some of the winning technology has actually been made and is now being used to map the ocean floor on a commercial scale. So it gives you a network that you wouldn't necessarily have access to if you were just applying for an award or applying for a grant. It actually opens up what it is that you're doing to a, an audience that you would not necessarily get. And that's something that I think we need more of. Your network is your net worth, is a quote I like to say again and again. It's certainly been true for my career, and it's something that I've recognized in other people's successes as well. In those challenge programs, the number of spin-offs and spillovers that would come from just the intensive look at a given problem would certainly be worthwhile. I'm going to start winding down, Dr. Catherine Ball. I really appreciate you being here. I've got a standard set of 
questions that I ask, what's working? What should government do more of? What's not working? And what should government just stop doing altogether? I'm not inviting you to have a crack at governments, but I am saying of what's out there, what's good and what's not so good. So the first thing I would say about policy and funding, for example, is we need to support our universities. They are the groundswell of the intellect that powers our economy, that we have suffered as a sector during this pandemic in a way that I actually personally think is a huge mistake. And I really feel, and I know that there'll be issues, but I really feel that industry might need to come to the plate on this. And if industry wants to take advantage of having intelligent people graduating from the best universities in the world, then they need to come to the party when it comes to supporting universities and the universities will welcome you with open arms because we want to work with industry to create graduates that are great for you, but also to work on problems that are going to be important for Australia going forwards. I'm a mother of a one-year-old and a three-year-old, both of whom could probably be Mars astronauts for all I know. And the idea that we wouldn't be able to train them or they wouldn't be able to go to university in Australia because our Australian universities just aren't as good as the British or American universities breaks my heart. We are number one in so many ways. We are so good at so many niches. We invented Wi-Fi, for goodness sake. You know, we are in terms of CSIRO and the relationships between government funding and the university relationships. We punch above our weight but that doesn't mean that we need to not provide funding and provide support. Now, I'm not just suggesting that you open the cash taps. I'm suggesting that there's different ways to do this. And I know that we've been looking at the innovation and science opportunities, and that's going to be hopefully evolving in the next few years. But, you know, I just like to remind industry that if you get involved with a university, you know, we're classically not for profit. So, you know, we're tax deductible. Any support you might want to give to your alma mater, it's tax deductible. And one of the things that I probably wished that I'd had and I didn't during the pandemic was a note from my alma mater, which is Newcastle upon Tyne University in the UK, saying, Catherine, we're in trouble. Can you give us a hundred quid? In which point I would have given them a hundred quid. And if every one of their alumni that was in a good enough position to give them 100 quid, gave them 100 quid, it would be a great breathing space to get university sector back on board for a post-pandemic boom. Now, one of the things we do see during times like this is that the boom is bigger than the bust was. And so expecting a revenge spend in our economy, expecting a, a boom in our sovereign manufacturing capability, we need a strong university network to be able to survive and thrive and grow and be the lighthouse economy that Australia can be for the region. So without wanting to get on my soapbox too much, I think we need to recognise that the way we work as an economy is like a pyramid, like a food pyramid or a food web. And if we don't have enough people working on problems at the bottom of that pyramid, then we won't get enough people who are good at it at the top of the pyramid. And that includes our ASX 100. So my big ask to anyone listening to this is to call your alma mater, call your university that you went to, that you had great times at when you were a teenager and you were in your 20s and some of the best memories of your life and give them some money and support some of their research. Because if we don't do that, then we're going to be in trouble. Catherine Ball from Australian National University. Thank you very much for uh, for coming on today. Very thought-provoking last comments there. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. you enjoyed this episode of the commercial disco please like subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us and head on over to our website innovationoz.com to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech innovation and policy and reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show until the next time this is the commercial disco Wishing you a great week ahead.